Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Planet Strappers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planet Strappers by Raymond C. Gollum. Chapter 4, Part 1. Frank Nelson's view of empire building on the moon was brief, all-encompassing, and far too sketchy to be very satisfying, as Rodan turned about in his universal gimbaled pilot's seat, spiraled his battered rocket down backwards with the small nuclear jets firing forward in jerky, tooth-cracking bursts to check speed further. It was necessary to go around the abortive sub-planet that had always accompanied the Earth almost once to reduce velocity enough for a landing. Thus Nelson glimpsed much territory, the splashed irregular shape of Sarantitis, the international base on the mare, the dust sea of the same name, the radiating threads of trails and embryo highways, the ever-widening separation of isolated domes and scattered human diggings and workings fairly scratched in the lunar crust, as, at a still great height, Frank's gaze swept outward from the greatest center of human endeavor on the moon. It was much the same around Tycho Station, except that this base was smaller and was built in a great white-rayed crater whose walls were pierced by tunnels for exit and entry. The Tovey camp, glimpsed later and only at the distant horizon, seemed not very different from the others, except for the misleading patterns of camouflage. That the Tovies should have an exclusive center of their own was not even legal, according to UN agreements. But facts were facts, and what did anyone do about them? Frank was not very concerned with such issues just then, for there was an impression that was overpowering, the slightness of the intrusion of his kind on a two-thousand-something-mile-in-diameter globe of incredible desert, overlapping ring walls, craters centered in radiating streaks of white ash, mountain ranges that sank gradually into dust, which once two billion years ago, after probable ejection from volcanoes, had no doubt floated in a then palpable atmosphere. But now, to a lone man down there, they would be bleak plains stretching to a disconcertingly near horizon. Frank Nelson's view was one of fascination, behind which was the chilly thought. This is my choice. Here is where I will have to live for a short while that can seem ages. Space looks tame now. Can I make it all right? Worse, how about Lester? Frank looked around him. Like Rodin, Lester and he had both pivoted around in their gimbaled seats, to which they had safety-strapped themselves, to face the now forward-pointing stern jets. Rodin, looking more trap-mouthed than before, had said nothing further as he guided the craft gingerly lower. Lester was biting his heavy lip. His narrow chin trembled. A faint whisper had begun. As far back as the 1940s, astronomers had begun to suspect that the moon was, after all, not entirely airless. There would be traces of heavy gases, argon, neon, xenon, krypton, and volcanic carbon dioxide. It would be expanded far upward above the surface because the feeble lunar gravity could not give it sufficient weight to compress it very much. So it would thin out much less rapidly with altitude 
than does the terrestrial atmosphere. From a density of perhaps one twelve-thousandth of Earth's sea-level norm at the moon's surface, it would thin to perhaps one twenty-thousandth at a height of eighty miles, being thus roughly equivalent in density to Earth's gaseous envelope at the same level. And at this height was the terrestrial zone where meteors flare. This theory about the lunar atmosphere had proven to be correct. The tiny density was sufficient to give the moon almost as effective an atmospheric meteor screen as the Earth's. The relatively low velocity needed to maintain vehicles in circumlunar orbits made its danger to such vehicles small. It could help reduce speed for a landing. It caused that innocuous hiss of passage. But it could sometimes be treacherous. Frank thought of these things as the long minutes dragged. Perhaps Rodan, hunched intently over his controls, had reason enough there to be silent. The actual landing still had to be made in the only way possible on worlds whose air covering was so close to a complete vacuum as this, like a cat climbing down a tree backwards. With flaming jets still holding it up and spinning gyros keeping it vertical, the rocket lowered gradually. The seats swung level, keeping their occupants right side up. There was a hovering pause, then the faint jolt of contact. The jet growl stopped. Complete silence closed in like a hammer blow. "'Do you men know where you are?' Rodan asked after a moment. "'At the edge of Marinova, I think,' Frank answered, his eyes combing the demon's landscape beyond the thick, darkened glass of the cabin's ports. The dazzling sun was low, early morning of two weeks of daylight. The shadows were long, black shafts. "'Yes, there's Tower Rock,' Lester quavered, "'and the Arabian Range going down under the dust of the plain.' "'Correct,' Rodan answered. "'We're well over the rim of the far side. "'You'll never see the earth from here. "'The nearest settlement is eight hundred miles away, "'and it's Tovi at that. "'This is a really remote spot,' as I intimated before. He paused, as if to let this significant information be appreciated. So that's settled, he went on. Now, I'll enlighten you about what else you need to know. Come along. Frank Nelson felt the dust crunch under the rubberized boot soles of his archer. There was a brief walk, then a pause. Rodin pointed to a pit dynamited out of the dust and lava rock and to small piles of grayish material beside six-inch borings rectangularly spaced over a wide area. "'There is an extensive underlying layer of gypsum here,' he said, the water-bearing rock. A mile away, there's an ample deposit of graphite, carbon. Thus, there exists a complete local source of hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, ideal for synthesizing various hydrocarbonic chemicals or making complicated polyethylene materials, such as stellene, so useful in space. Lead, too, is not very far off. Silicon is, of course, available everywhere. There'll be a plant belonging to Hoffman Chemicals here before too long. I was prospecting for them, for a site like this. Actually, I was very lucky, locating this spot almost right away, which is fortunate. They think I'm still looking, and aren't concerned." 
Rodin was quiet for a moment before continuing. The pupils of his eyes dilated and contracted strangely. Because I found something else, he went on. It was luck beyond dreams, and it must be my very own. I intend to investigate it thoroughly, even if it takes years. Come along again. This time the walk was about three hundred yards past three small stellene domes, the parabolic mirrors of a solar-powered plant, a sun-energized tractor, and onward almost to the mountain wall, embedded in the dust of the mare. There Frank noticed a circular, glassy area. Strips of magnesium were laid like bridging planks across chunks of lava, and in the dust all around were countless curious scrabbled marks. Rodin stood carefully on a magnesium strip and looked back at Nelson and Lester, his brows crinkling as if he was suspicious that he had already told them too much. Frank Nelson became more aware of the heavy automatic pistol at Rodin's hip and felt a tingling urge to get away from here and from this man, as if a vast mistake had been made. "'It is necessary for you to be informed about some matters,' Rodin said slowly. "'For instance, unless it is otherwise disturbed, a footprint, or the like, will endure for millions of years on the moon, as surely as if impressed in granite, because there is no weather left to rub it out. You will be working here.' I am preserving some of these markings, so please walk on these strips, which Dutch and I have laid down. Rodin indicated a large, archer-clad man who also carried an automatic. He had the face of a playful but dangerous mastiff. He was hunkered down in a shallow pit, scanning the ground with a watch-sized device, probably intended for locating objects hidden just beneath the surface, electronically. Beside him was a screen-bottomed container, no doubt meant for sifting dust. "'Greetings, novices,' he gruffed, with genial contempt. But his pale eyes, beyond the curve of his helmet, had a masked puzzlement, as if something from the lunar desolation had gotten into his brain, leaving the realization of where he was permanently, not altogether, clear to him. Rodin pulled a shiny object from his thigh pouch and held it out, in a gloved palm for his new employees to peer at. "'One of the things we found,' he remarked, "'incomplete. If we could, for instance, locate the other parts.' Frank saw a little cylinder, with gray coils wrapped inside it, a power chamber, perhaps, to be lined with magnetic force, the only thing that could contain what amounted to a tiny twenty-million-degree piece of a star's hot heart.' It was a familiar principle for releasing and managing nuclear power. But the device, perhaps part of a small weapon, was subtly marked by the differences of another technology. "'I believe I have said enough,' Rodin stated, with a thin smile, "'though some facts will be unavoidably obvious to you working here. But at least I will let you figure them out for yourselves, since you are well-informed young men, by your own statement.' Here Rodin looked hard at the pale, unsteady Lester. "'We will go back now, so I can show you the camp, its routine, and your place in it. We have three domes, garden and living quarters, with a workshop and supply dome between them.' Quarters proved to be okay, two bunks and the usual compact accessories. "'Leave your archers in the lockers outside your door. 
Here are your keys, Rodan suggested. Helen will have a meal ready for you in the adjacent dining room. Afterwards, take a helpful tranquilizer and sleep. No work until you awaken. I shall leave you now. It was a good meal, steak cultured and grown in a nourishing solution on the moon, perhaps at Serene, much as Dr. Alexis Corral had long ago grown and kept for years a living fragment of a chicken's heart. Potatoes, peas, and tomatoes, too. All had become common staples in hydroponic gardens off the earth. "'What do you make of what Rodan was talking about, Les?' Frank asked conversationally. But David Lester was lost and vague, his food almost untouched. I, I, I don't know, he stammered. Scared and embittered further by this bad sign, Frank turned to Helen. And how are you? he asked hopefully. I'm all right, she answered, without a trace of encouragement. She was in jeans. Maybe she was eighteen. Maybe she was Rodin's daughter. Her face was as reddened as a peasant's. It was hard to tell that she was a girl at all. She wasn't a girl. It was soon plain that she was a zombie with about ten words in her vocabulary. How could a girl have gotten to this impossible region anyway? Now Frank tried to delay Lester's inevitable complete crack-up by encouraging his interest in their situation. It's big, Les, he said. It's got to be. An expedition came here to investigate the moon. It couldn't be any more recently than sixty million years ago, if it was from as close as Mars or the asteroid planet. Two adjacent worlds were competing, then, the scientists know. Both were smaller than Earth, cooled faster, bore life sooner. Which sent the party? I saw where their rocket ship must have stood, a glassy spot where the dust was once fused. From all the markings, they must have been around for months. Nowhere else on the moon that I ever heard of is there anything similar left. So maybe they did most of their survey work by gliding somehow above the ground, not disturbing the dust. I think the little indentations we saw look Martian. That would be a break. Mars still has weather. Archaeological objects wouldn't stay new there for millions of years, but here they would. Rodin is right. He's got something that'll make him famous. Yes. I think I'll have a devil killer and hit the stack, Frank, Lester said. Oh, all right, Frank agreed wearily. Me likewise. Frank awoke naturally from a dreamless slumber. After a breakfast of eggs that had been a powder, Lester and he were at the diggings sifting dust for the dropped and discarded items of an alien visitation. Thus Frank's job began. In the excitement of a hunt, as if for ancient treasure, for a long time, through many ten-hour shifts, Frank Nelson found perhaps unfortunate Lethe of forgetfulness for his worries. And for the mind-poisoning effects of his silence and desolation in this remote part of the moon. They found things, thinly scattered in the ten-acre area that Rodin meant tediously to sift. The screws and nuts, bright and new, were almost earthly. But would anyone ever know what the little plastic rings were for, or the sticks of cellulose, or the curved wire device with fuzz at the ends? But then, would an off-earth being ever guess the use of, say, a toothbrush or a bobby pin? The metal cylinders, neatly cut open, might have contained food. Dried, leaf-like dregs still remained inside. 
There were small bottles made of pearly glass, too, empty except for gummy traces. They were stoppered with a stuff like rubber. There was also crumpled scraps like paper or cellophane, most of them marked with designs or symbols. After ten earth days in the lunar afternoon, Frank found the grave. He shouted as his brushing hands uncovered a glassy, flexible surface. Rodan took charge at once. Back, he commanded. Then he was avidly busy in the pit, working as carefully as a fine jeweler. He cleared more dust away, not with a trowel, not with his gloved fingers, but with a little nylon brush. The thing was like a seven-pointed star, four feet across, and was the ripped, transparent casing of its body and limbs another version of a vacuum armor? The material resembled stellene, as in an archer, there were metal details, mechanical, electronic, and perhaps nuclear. In the punctured covering, the corpse was dry, of course. Stomach, brain sac, rough, pitted skin, terminal tendrils, some coarse, some fine, almost, as thread for doing the most delicate work, half out of protecting sheaths at the end of its arms or legs. In the armor, the being must have walked like a toe-dancer on metal spikes, or it might have even rolled like a wheel. The bluish tint of its crusty body was half-faded to tan. Perhaps no one would ever explain the gapping wound that must have killed the creature, unless it had been a rockfall. "'Martian!' Lester gasped. "'At least we know they were like this.' "'Yes,' Rodan agreed softly. "'I'll look after this find.' Moving very carefully, even in the weak lunar gravity, he picked up the product of another evolution and bore it away to the shop dome. Frank was furious. This was his discovery, and he was not even allowed to examine it. Still, something warned him not to argue. In a little while, his treasure hunter's eagerness came back, holding out through most of that protracted lunar night when they worked their ten-hour periods with electric lamps attached to their shoulders. But gradually, Frank began to emerge from his single line of attention. Knowing that Lester must soon collapse, and waiting tensely for it to happen, was part of the cause. But there was much more. There was the fact that direct radio communication with the Earth around the curve of the Moon was impossible. The Tovies didn't like radio relay orbiters, useful for beamed short-wave messages. They had destroyed the few unmanned ones that had been put up. There were several times when he casually sent a slender beam of radio energy groping out towards Mars and the asteroid belt, trying to call Story or the Kuzaks, and had received no answer. Well, this was not remarkable. Those regions were enormous beyond imagining. You had to pinpoint your thread of tiny energy almost precisely. But once, for an instant while at work, he heard a voice which could be Mitch Story call, Frank, Frankie, in his helmet phone. There was no chance for him to get an instrument fix on the direction of the incoming waves. And, of course, his name, Frank, was a common one. But an immediate attempt to beam Mars yellow in the black sky and its vicinity produced no result. His trapped feelings increased, and nostalgia began to bore into him. He had memories of lost sounds. Rodin tried to combat the thick silence with taped popular music, broadcast on a very low power from a field set at the diggings. 
but the girls' voices, singing richly, only made matters worse for Frank Nelson, and other memories piled up on him. Jarviston, Minnesota, wind, hay smell, car smell, home, cripes, damn. Lester's habit of muttering unintelligibly to himself was much worse now. Frank was expecting him to start screaming at any minute. Frank hadn't tried to talk to him much, and Lester, more introverted than ever, was no starter of conversations. But now, at the sunrise, S.O.B., was it possible that they had been here almost a month? Frank, at the diggings, indulged in some muttering himself. "'Are you all right, Frank?' Lester asked mildly. "'Not altogether,' Frank Nelson snapped dryly. "'How about you?' "'Oh, I believe I'm okay at last,' Lester replied with startling brightness. "'I was afraid I wouldn't be. "'I guess I had an inferiority complex, "'and there was also something to live up to. "'You see, my dad was here with the original Clifford expedition. "'We always agreed that I should become a space scientist, too. "'Mom went along with that until Dad was killed. "'Here... Well, I'm over to hump now. You see, I'm so interested in everything around me that the desolation has a cushion of romance that protects me. I don't just see the bleakness. I imagine the moon as it once was, with volcanoes spitting and with thunderous sounds in its steamy atmosphere. I see it when the Martians were here. They surely visited Earth, too, though there all evidence weathered away. I even see the moon as it is now, noticing the details that are easy to miss, the little balls of ash that got stuck together by raindrops two billion years ago, and the pulpy, hard-shelled plants that you can still find alive if you know where to look. There are some up on the ridge where I often go when off-shift. Carbon dioxide and a little water vapor must still come out of the deep crack there. Anyhow, they used to say that a lonesome person with perhaps a touch of schizophrenia, might do better off the earth than the more usual types. Frank Nelson was surprised as much by this open self-analytical explanation, and the clearing up of the family history behind him, as by the miracle that had happened. Cripes, was it possible that, in his own way, Lester was more rugged than anybody else of the old bunch? Of course, even Lester was somewhat in wonder himself, and had to talk it all out to somebody. "'Good for you, Les,' Nelson enthused, relieved. "'Only... well, skip it for now.' Two work periods later, he approached Rodin. "'It will take months to sift all this dust,' he said. "'I may not want to stay that long.' The pupils of Rodin's eyes flickered again. "'Oh,' he said, "'per contract you can quit any time. "'But I provide no transportation.' Do you want to walk 800 miles to a Tovian station? On the moon it is difficult to keep hired help, so one must rely on practical counter-circumstances. Besides, I wouldn't want you to be at Serentitis Base or anywhere else talking about my discovery. Nelson, I'm afraid you're stuck. Now Nelson had the result of his perhaps incautious test statement. He knew that he was trapped by a dangerous tyrant such as might spring up in any new, lawless country. It was just a thought, sir, he said, being as placating as he dared, and controlling his rising fury. For there was something that hardened too quickly in Rodin. He had the fame and glory bug, 
and could be savage about it. If you wanted to get away, you had to scheme by yourself. There wasn't only Rodin to get past. There was Dutch, the big ape with the dangling pistol. Nelson decided to work quietly as before for a while. There were a few more significant finds, what might have been a nuclear-operated clock, broken, of course, and some diamond drill bits. Though the long lunar day dragged intolerably, there was the paradox of time seeming to escape, too. Daylight ended with the sunset. Two weeks of darkness was no period for any moves. At sunup, a second month was almost finished, and ten acres of dust was less than half sifted. In the shop and supply dome, David Lester had been chemically analyzing the dregs of various Martian containers for Rodin. In spare moments, he classified those scarce and incredibly hardy lunar growths that he had found in the foothills of the Arabian range. Some had hard, bright green tendrils that during daylight opened out of woody shells full of spongy hollows as an insulation against the fearsome cold of night. Some were so small that they could only be seen under a microscope. Frank's interest here, however, palled quickly, and Lester, in his mumbling, studious preoccupation, was no companionable antidote for loneliness. Frank tried a new approach on Helen, who really was Rodin's daughter. Do you like poetry, Helen? I used to memorize Keats, Frost, Shakespeare. They were there in the dining room. She brightened a little. I remember some. Do you remember clouds, the sound of water, trees, grass? She actually smiled wistfully. Yes, Sunday afternoons, a blue dress, my mother when she was alive, a dog I had once. Helen Rodin wasn't quite a zombie after all. Maybe he could win her confidence if he went slow. But twenty hours later at the diggings, when Dutch stumbled over Frank's sifter, she reverted. I'll learn you to leave junk in my way, you greenhorn squirt, Dutch shouted. Then he tossed Frank thirty feet. Frank came back, kicked him in his thinly armored stomach, knocked him down, and tried to get his gun. But Dutch grabbed him with those big arms. Helen was also pointing a small pistol at him. She was trembling. Dad will handle this, she said. Rodan came over. You don't have much choice, do you, Nelson? he sneered. However, perhaps Dutch was crude. I apologize for him, and I will deduct a hundred dollars from his pay and give it to you. Much obliged, Frank said dryly. After that, everything happened to build his tensions to the breaking point. At a work period's end, near the lunar noon, he heard a voice in his helmet phone. Frank, this is two and two. Why don't you ever call or answer? Two and Two's usually plaintive voice had a special quality, as if he was maybe in trouble. This time Frank got a directional fix, adjusted his antenna, and called. Hey, Two and Two, hey pal, it's me, Frank Nelson. Venus was in the sky, not too close to the sun. But still, though Nelson called repeatedly, there was no reply. He got back to quarters and looked over not only his radio, but his entire archer. The radio had been fiddled with, delicately. It would still work, but not in a narrow enough beam to reach millions of miles, or even five hundred. 
An intricate focusing device had been removed from a waveguide. That wasn't the worst that was wrong with the Archer. The small nuclear battery which energized the moisture reclaimer, the heating units, and especially the air restorer, not only for turning its pump, but for providing the intense internal illumination necessary to promote the release of oxygen in the photosynthetic process of the chlorophane when there was no sun, had been replaced by a chemical battery of a far smaller active lifespan. The armor locker. Rodin had extra keys and could tamper and make replacements at any time he considered it necessary. Lester had wandered a field somewhere. When he showed up, Nelson jarred him out of his studious preoccupations long enough for them both to examine his armor. Same identical story. Rodin made sure, Frank gruffed. That SOB put us on a real short tether. David Lester looked frightened for a minute. Then he seemed to ease. Maybe it doesn't make any difference, he said. Though I'd like to call my mother, but I'm doing things I like. After a while, when the job is finished, he'll let us go. Yeah, Frank breathed. There was the big question. Nelson figured that an old, corny pattern stuck out all over Rodan. Personal glory emphasized to a point where it got beyond sense. And wouldn't that unreason be more likely to get worse in the terrible lunar desert than it ever would on Earth? Would Rodan ever release them? Wouldn't he fear encroachment on his archaeological success, even after all his data had been made public? This was all surmise prediction, of course, but his extreme precautions, already taken, did not look good. On the moon, there could easily be an arranged accident, killing Lester and him, Frank Nelson, and maybe even Dutch. Rodin's pupils had that nervous way of expanding and contracting rapidly, too. Nelson figured that he might be reading the signs somewhat warpedly himself. Still, at the end of another shift, Nelson took a walk, farther than ever before, up through a twisted pass that penetrated to the other side of the Arabian Mountains. He still had that much freedom. He wanted to think things out. In bitter, frustrating reversal of all his former urges to get off the earth, he wanted, like a desperate weakling, to be back home. Up beyond the Arabians, he saw the tread marks of a small tractor vehicle in a patch of dust. There was a single boot print. A short distance further on, there was another. He examined them with a quizzical excitement. But there weren't any more. For miles ahead and behind, unimpressible lava rock extended. Another curious thing happened only minutes later. A thousand miles overhead, out of reach of his sabotaged transmitter, one of those around-the-moon tour bubs, like the unfortunate far side, was passing. He heard the program they were broadcasting. A male voice crooned out what must be a new, popular song. He had heard so few new songs. Serene found a queen. Her name is Eileen. Nelson's reaction wasn't even a thought at first. It was only an eerie tingle in all his flesh. Then, realizing what his suspicion was, he listened further, with all his nerves taut but no explanation of the song's origin was given. He even tried futilely to radio the pleasure bub, full of earth tourists. 
In minutes it had sunk behind the abrupt horizon, leaving him with his unanswered wonder. Girls, he thought, in the midst of his utter solitude. All girls to love and have. Eileen? Cripes! Could it be little old Eileen Sands? Up on her ballet dancing toes, sometimes at Hendricks, and humming herself a tune? Eileen, who had deserted the bunch, meaning to approach space in a feminine way. Holy cow! Had even she gotten that far, so fast? Suddenly the possibility became a symbol of what the others of the bunch must be accomplishing, while here he was, trapped, stuck futilely inside a few bleak square miles on the far side of Earth's own satellite. So here was another force of Frank Nelson's desperation. He made up his mind, which perhaps just then was a bit mad. With outward calm, he returned to camp, slept, worked, slept and worked again. He decided that there was no help to be had from Lester, who was still no man of action. Better to work alone, anyway. Fortunately, on the moon, it was easy to call deadly forces to one's aid. Something as simple as possible. The trick should be. Of course, all he wanted to do was to get the upper hand on Rodin and Dutch, take over the camp, get the missing parts of his radio and archer, borrow the solar tractor, and get out of here. To Serentitis Base, Serene. His only preparation was to sharpen the edges of a diamond-shaped trowel used at the diggings with a piece of pumice. Then he waited. End of Chapter 4, Part 1